Thanks, Rich. Good to see all of you. Uh, welcome. Good afternoon. It is now. Um, so yeah, as Rich said, we've talk, been talking about vision, and, and actually over the last two weeks in particular, I've been sharing about the two big things that we kind of feel God has been particularly speaking to us about uh, for the church at this time. And so the first of those was the importance of the church being a family. That the church isn't an organization or a, a service provider that serves a bunch of consumers. The church is a family, a community, a genuine loving community that is characterized by loving one another sacrificially, just as Jesus has loved us, which means sacrificial generosity to one another. It means sacrificial hospitality. It means sacrificial use of our time for one another. Sacrificial love, just like Jesus has loved us, and the witness that that is to the world when we are able to do that. So we are a family, and the call is to be all the more a family, the family of God. And then last week was about being the, a people of the Spirit, and the importance of the baptism of the Holy Spirit and being filled with the Holy Spirit. And actually, we can't be the kind of family that God calls us to be. We can't live the kind of lives that God calls us to live without the power of the Holy Spirit on an ongoing basis, without being people of the Spirit. So family and spirit. And those are the two big things that we felt God speaking to us about. So what's this week about? Uh, is there a third thing? Not, not, not in the same way. Those two things, family, spirit... They are what we as a team of elders with input from people in the church, prophetic people in the church and people outside the church, those are the two big things that we feel God impressing upon us. But today I want to just share what I trust will be an encouragement for you, um, which is linked in with being family, it's linked in with being uh, people of the Spirit. But there's something particular I felt the Lord speaking to me about for the last few months really, and that is about standing firm. Standing firm in the face of what comes against us, and doing that not in our own strength, but in his strength. Because um, this is a time when there is so much to be encouraged by, and we are seeing so many encouragements. Welcoming people into church membership is a massive encouragement. Seeing all of you, massive encouragement. This morning, the 9.30 meeting was absolutely rammed full of people. Such an encouragement. And in our staff meeting on Tuesday, every week we start with encouragements and stories. And it was just story after story after story of what God is doing in different ministries, different areas of the church, and sharing that together. Huge, huge encouragements going on. But you know, we know that when God is on the move in that way, and when we're taking territory in that way, the opposition also goes up. And that is something I've particularly um, felt, that even at this time of lots of encouragements, it feels like, and I don't know about you, but for me, it feels like there is an intensity to the spiritual battle that we face at the moment. And the call of the Lord is to stand firm in that, to stand firm in his strength uh, and not be overwhelmed. Now, the obvious place to go to speak into that would be Ephesians 6. So the armor of God and, 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 and being strong in the Lord and all that. Well, I'm, not, I'm actually not going to go there today, but I think next term we will spend some time in Ephesians 6. I just think this is so important for us to grab hold of, the spiritual warfare, how God equips us for that. Uh, so we'll look at that next term. But actually, I feel the Lord's been drawing me particularly to a story, to a, a, a passage in 2 Kings chapter 6 to bring an encouragement around how we see the circumstances of life that we face, whether we see things through an earthly lens or through a spiritual lens. So I'm going to break the story into two parts, 
Um, so let's have a look at the first part of the story together, and then we'll have a look at the second part a bit later. So in 2 Kings chapter 6, if you've got a Bible, you can follow along with me. Uh, I'm going to be reading from verse 8. Now the king of Aram was at war with Israel. After conferring with his officers, he said, I will set up my camp in such and such a place. The man of God, that's Elisha, the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, beware of passing that place because the Arameans are going down there. And so the king of Israel checked on the place indicated by the man of God. Time and again, Elisha warned the king so that he was on his guard in such places. This enraged the king of Aram. He summoned his officers and demanded of them, Will you not tell me which of us is on the side of the king of Israel? None of us, my lord the king, said one of his officers. But Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the very words you speak in your bedroom. Go find out where he is, the king ordered, so I can send men and capture him. And the report came back. He is in Dothan. He sent horses and chariots and a strong force there. They went by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh, my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, Oh, Lord, Open his eyes so he may see. And then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and he saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So we'll pick up the rest of the story in a bit. But what we see in this first part of the story is the difference between spiritual blindness and spiritual sight. Whether you see things through earthly lenses or through spiritual lenses, whether you're limited to an earthly perspective on circumstances or whether you can see the greater spiritual reality of circumstances. And actually, we first see this spiritual blindness in the Arameans themselves. So they're at war with Israel. They've been looting and pillaging and raiding and killing and you know, all the stuff that happens in war. But they've been getting really frustrated because the king of Israel always seems to be a step ahead. It's like he knows their plans and, and every time they lay a trap for him, he seems to be able to avoid it. And that, of course, is very frustrating. And uh, the king of Aram is, is furious about that and he's trying to work out who is feeding this information to the king. And they work out it's actually no one in their own camp. It's not there's a spy in their own camp. They work out it's Elisha, the prophet, who is receiving this information from God. He's receiving this revelation and passing on this information to the king of Israel. So the king of Aram sees an opportunity to strike a decisive blow in this war. Get Elisha. Get him. If we get this prophet who keeps thwarting us, well, in effect, they're thinking, if we can take him out of the game, if we can capture him, it's kind of like capturing God. It's like neutralizing God and they can finally win the war and take Israel. Now that reveals their spiritual blindness because they think the power lies with Elisha rather than with God. They completely underestimate God. They're spiritually blind. They can't see the spiritual reality of the situation that it's actually God who is thwarting them and not Elisha. But then you might expect them to be spiritually blind because they don't know the, the real God. They're Arameans. They're not, they're not from Israel. They don't know the real God. But then we have Elisha's servant. 
And bear in mind, this servant is probably a prophet, a prophet in training, just like Elisha was Elijah's servant before. So this servant, this prophet, he can't see the spiritual reality of the situation either. He just sees this huge Aramean army, all the horses and chariots on the ground who have come to get them. And he's scared. Naturally, he is scared. He doesn't know what to do. But when God opens his eyes and gives him spiritual sight, and suddenly he sees a different reality. He sees these magnificent horses and chariots of fire in the hills, all around, in the skies, all around Elisha. The armies of heaven are with them. When he sees that greater spiritual reality, well, that changes everything. And it would, wouldn't it? You would see this hostile force that's coming against you in very different light once you had seen that vision. But my guess is that most of us can identify with Elisha before he sees that vision. And maybe things that you're going through right now, or things that you've known in the past, situations you've had in the past, where you feel surrounded on all sides. You feel overwhelmed. You feel oppressed by your circumstances. And it feels a bit hopeless. You can't see God coming to the rescue. You can't see beyond the circumstances. And those circumstances could be all sorts of things. It might be there is this one huge thing that is dominating everything in your life. Serious sickness, serious illness, and other things can just be like this enormous thing that completely fills your horizon, fills your vision, and you just can't see beyond that circumstance. Or it might be the combination of a number of things that are challenging and they are draining and cumulatively it all just feels overwhelming. It might be you feel overwhelmed by the state of the world. And the state of our society, that overwhelms me sometimes. You just look and think, what is going on? You might feel overwhelmed by the relentless and aggressive secular worldviews on things like gender and sexuality that are aggressively being forced on our society, being forced on our children. And that can feel like a bit of an unstoppable tide. And you can think, well, how do I live like a Christian? How do I stand up for what I believe in this heated, emotional environment that we find ourselves in how do I do that you know one thing that we know as Christians is that we are in a battle and if you don't know it you will soon Christians are in a battle whether you like it or not we have a very real enemy who directs much of what we see going on in the world we have a very real enemy who wants to sow discouragement into you He wants to sow despondency and confusion, disorientation. He wants you to live in condemnation. He wants you to live in hopelessness. Those are the things that he wants to sow into you, into me, into the people of God to rob us of peace, to rob us of joy. But it's in those times that we need to be able to see through spiritual lenses to be able to reject the lies the enemy tells us, to be able to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. Because when God gives us eyes to see the circumstances we're we're faced with in his way, in the way he sees them, when he gives us spiritual sight, it changes everything. You become aware of a whole new reality, a whole new dimension. Even the things you can already see, the things you're already aware of, you start to see them and experience them in a whole different way. And I'm just going to show you this this short video clip. You may have seen something similar to this on YouTube before, but just have a look at what happens when this baby sees things suddenly in a new way. I already hate this. 
Christian. Christian. Open your eyes, buddy. Hi. 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 Hi, Hi Munchkin. <laughs> you like them? Like oh. Hi, you like them, huh? There's nothing quite as expressive as a, a, a baby's face for seeing what's really going on. So this, suddenly this baby sees with a new clarity and it reveals things that he wasn't aware of before. Suddenly... He sees the faces of his mum and dad in a new way. He, he was aware of their faces. He could see them in a certain way. Suddenly, though, he sees the, them in clarity, in sharp focus, and he can see the love on their faces, and it does something in him. He sees a whole new reality. It's like it opens up a whole new dimension to him. Suddenly, everything is different. And it's like if... If somebody who, who can't see, if somebody who is blind asks you to describe a color to them, you know, what, what does the color red sound like? What does the color red feel like? And you, you can have a go, you can get a certain way, but you come to the place where you realize that sight is not just an extension of all the other senses, it's a whole other reality when you can see. It's one thing to feel the face of somebody you know and to recognize them. It's quite another thing to see the smile spread across their face as they see you and what that does in their face and what that does in you. It's, it's one thing for, you know, to try to describe to someone who can't see about the moon and the stars, but actually you can have very little concept of them until you actually see them. And it's one thing for Elisha's servant to hear Elisha say, don't be afraid because those who are with us are more than those who are with them. That's great. That is true, and it's encouraging. But it's quite another thing for him to actually see that truth so vividly before him, these horses and chariots of fire. It's good to hear truth, and that is where we need to be family. That's where we need one another, to remind one another of what is true, but it's so much better to be held by that truth and to be captivated by that truth. So you see everything differently, and that is the work of the Spirit. That is the revelation of the Holy Spirit. We need family, people to remind us of truth. We need the Spirit to help us to see and experience the reality of that truth. And it reminds me of a, uh, a passage in Pilgrim's Progress, um, a very old story, allegory, book by John Bunyan, um, and I've got it here. This isn't actually, this is Little Pilgrim's Progress, which is adapted for children. I just find it much easier to understand. Pilgrim's Progress itself is quite dense. It's quite hard language to understand. Anyway, so Little Pilgrim's Progress, I'd recommend it for anyone. Anyway, there's a passage in here where the main character, Christian, all the characters have names which mean something. So you have fearful and uh, watchful is in this story. All the, all the names are like that. And the, the character called Christian, he's heading on his journey towards somewhere called the Palace Beautiful. And uh, this is what happens. He's on the path, and it says, The path now became very narrow indeed. And when he'd almost reached the palace gates, Christian saw the two lions, which had so frightened his friends, Mistrust and Timorous, lying just before him, one on each side of the way. Now the lions were chained but it was too dark for the chains to be seen, and little Christian stood still, wondering what he should do. There was only a very small space between the lions, and he thought that if he ventured to pass them, they would surely spring upon him. The name of the doorkeeper was Watchful, 
And he knew how much the pilgrims feared the lions. So he came very often to the door of his house to see if anyone was coming near. When he saw a little Christian, he called to him, saying, Don't be frightened. The lions are both chained. Keep in the middle of the path, and they will not hurt you. So Christian went on, trembling, very much afraid, but he was careful to keep to the middle of the path. And although the great creatures roared as he walked between them, they lay still and did not even stretch out their huge paws to touch him. And so... In that story, you have the encouraging words of watchful. And it's a little bit like the words of Elisha in verse 16. Don't be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And actually, the, the impact of hearing that truth on Christian was he, he went through. He fearfully, trembling, he chose to trust that truth. He chose to trust what watchful had told him. And he walked through the middle. And sometimes that is what we have to do. Sometimes that is the only thing we can do, is to walk stutteringly through a circumstance, trusting in what we know to be true, trusting in what the Bible tells us, trusting in the truths and the promises of God, we walk through. Sometimes that is the way we have to go. But you look at that story and think, it would have been really helpful for Christian to actually see those chains, wouldn't it? That would have changed how he walked through. If he could see the limitations that had been placed on this very intimidating opposition, that would have changed how he walked through. He walks through, these lions roar. The enemy will try to do that to us. He'll roar at us, but there's actually very little he can do because he's limited. Sometimes we have to just walk through those circumstances, but I think often we need God to open our eyes to see things from his perspective, to see a greater reality, so that things, for example, that you may have believed intellectually, things you may have believed theoretically, suddenly become so real to you, so experiential and so dazzling, that that is what overwhelms you. Who God is, who I am in him, that is what overwhelms me, that is what, what grabs me, that is what dominates your vision, even in really difficult circumstances. Because we can know these things, we can know that God loves me, he forgives me, he's for me, but without really seeing it, and without really experiencing it, we can know about it. But if that spiritual reality doesn't overwhelm you and grab you and transform you, then it's a little bit like you're still walking in blindness and you're seeing through an earthly perspective. And then circumstances we face can cause us to doubt the love of God for us, cause us to doubt his forgiveness and doubt our salvation and doubt that eternal hope that we have. You know, we need Jesus to open our eyes. And actually, I had a bit of a moment this morning like that. I was reading uh, in, the, in the book of Isaiah, for those who are still following the Old Testament in the year, today was Isaiah 35. Just magnificent chapter. I'd, I'd go away and read it. Isaiah 35. Glorious chapter about the future that awaits those who God redeems. And it was like, actually, in that moment, God opened my eyes to something again. He woke something up in me of like, oh, yes. Yes, that is what will come. That is who he is. That is what he's promised us. Isaiah 35, brilliant. We need Jesus to open our eyes because when he does, when he opens our eyes to the spiritual reality of who he is and his forgiveness for you, his power for you, your identity in him, your eternal hope, your eternal salvation, that overwhelms you. A little bit like that baby suddenly seeing his parents' face in clarity and seeing the love in their face. He suddenly sees something he already knew, 
he sees it in a new way. And that's what Jesus can do for us in terms of seeing the love of God for us and experiencing the reality of that. That overwhelms you when he does that. When the Spirit reveals that to us, it's overwhelming. It's as revolutionary as being born blind and then receiving your sight. It's like seeing the moon and the stars for the first time. You suddenly see things in a completely different way, a whole new reality, a whole new dimension that changes the way you see every circumstance of life. It doesn't deny the reality or the pain of those circumstances, but it does give you a very different perspective on them. So sometimes our prayer needs to be, Lord, open my eyes. Open my eyes. Help me to see things as you see them. Help me to see through spiritual lenses, to see the reality that you see. Let's have a look at what happens next in the story, because I think this is important for how we can have confidence in this. Okay? So from verse 18, as the enemy came down toward him, Elisha prayed to the Lord, strike these people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness as Elisha had asked. And Elisha told them, this is not the road and this is not the city. Follow me, I will lead you to the man you're looking for. And he led them to Samaria. Samaria is the capital of Israel. After they entered the city, Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men so that they can see. And then the Lord opened their eyes and they looked. And there they were inside Samaria. And when the king of Israel saw them, he asked Elisha, shall I kill them, my father? Shall I kill them? Do not kill them, he answered. Would you kill men you've captured with your own sword or bow? No, set food and water before them so they may eat and drink, and then go back to their master. So he prepared a great feast for them. And after they had finished eating and drinking, he sent them away, and they returned to their master. So the bands from Aram stopped raiding Israel's territory. I mean, this is, this is extraordinary. This is just extraordinary. These men who are hostile to Elisha, they're hostile to Israel, they're hostile to God, they're led in blindness or in confusion right into the heart of enemy territory and then their eyes are opened again. And so it's like for them waking up from a dream and coming to terms for them with a pretty grim reality. And you know, in that moment, they must have become aware of a spiritual truth that they had been blind to before. They must have become aware that they've got this very, very wrong, that actually this God this is a God who cannot be defeated. They must have become aware of that truth in that moment, and they must have feared the worst. Because they know, these soldiers, they know the sorts of things they've done to people in Israel. They know uh, some of the atrocities they may have committed, and the king of Israel is there himself. Maybe he's even got his sword out saying, can I kill them? Can I kill them? Elisha says, no, no. You wouldn't do that to people you had captured yourself, but this is not your conquest. This is the Lord's conquest. He captured them, not you. And then he goes on to show exactly what happens when you get captured by God, when you get captured by the Lord. They receive the most extraordinary grace. He, he gives them a feast and sends them away. This is the last thing that they were expecting, and it's not what they deserved. So these men have come in hostility to God, thinking that's the way that we get liberation. Right? Just as many people in our world today do. Think freedom, liberation comes from rejecting God and all the perceived 
rules and religion and constraints that come with, with God. No, you reject that and you live life for yourself. I mean, it's utter rubbish and it doesn't take long to discover it. It's, it, it's, it's nonsense. That path in life, is, it doesn't lead to any kind of liberation. But they think that at the time, these Arameans think that by effectively coming in hostility to God, effectively trying to capture God, trying to neutralize God through Elisha, that will end the war and they will enjoy the peace on their own terms. But Elisha shows them a different way. He shows them true liberation and that that comes not by trying to capture God and be in opposition to God, but by letting God capture you. And their experience of of being captured by God was not what they expected because they received mercy and grace. And that is the same for anybody in our world today as well who turns in repentance from opposition to God to putting themselves in God's hands, to letting God capture you. And actually, who knows, maybe some people in this room today are in that position. They experienced the most extraordinary mercy and grace. And it says at the end, so... Therefore, because of that, the bands from Aram stopped raiding Israel's territory. The raid stopped. The war was over. Their hearts were changed by the grace of God. Their eyes were opened to a spiritual reality. In effect, Elisha showed them the gospel ahead of time, way ahead of time. He showed them the gospel. Now, some of the Israelites, probably most of the Israelites, would have been horrified by this. They would have been absolutely incredulous. How can you do this, Elisha? Do you know what these men have done? These men have killed some of my friends. These men have killed some of my family. These men have destroyed entire communities in Israel. They deserve execution. They deserve the sword, and you're letting them go. How could you do that? And that is the question, isn't it? How could Elisha do that? How can he do that? Well, I think what he does is a deeply, deeply prophetic action that points forward to something coming a long time in the future. This kind of grace that Elisha showed is only possible because of something that would happen centuries later when another man came along, a bit like Elisha in that he was a prophetic man of God, but actually a far greater Elisha because he was God himself. And he found himself in a seemingly impossible position, surrounded by enemies in the garden of Gethsemane. And one of his servants freaked out a bit as well. But Jesus said to him, he said, Peter, put away your sword. Put away your sword. Do you not think that I can call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? I could have the chariots of fire. I could, I could have the angelic host, the, 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 the armies of heaven coming to my rescue. And just imagine that scene for a minute. 12 legions of angels, that's over 70,000 mighty angels. Just picture them surrounding this scene in the Garden of Gethsemane, itching to get involved and defend Jesus. But they're held back because the cross was the will of God. And it's, it's like Jesus is quietly saying, Peter, I don't lack resources. You don't need to defend me. I don't lack the resources. He lived under the same unseen protection that we find here in 2 Kings chapter 6. Surrounded by an angelic host. But Jesus came intentionally not to be saved by them. Not to be rescued by them. Which is what he deserved. He deserved rescue. But he came to be abandoned by them. Which is what we deserve. 
for our rebellion and opposition to God. So this incredible divine exchange takes place on the cross where Jesus took everything we deserve for our sinful lives of opposition to God. He took everything, didn't leave one thing untaken care of. He took it all to make it possible for us to get what he deserved for his life of purity and righteousness. And that is the only reason, the cross ultimately is the only reason that we can have confidence in this truth, that we can be sure of being surrounded by this angelic host, that the chariots of fire won't abandon us, that God is with us, that he, he gives us a feast instead of what we deserve. We can only be confident in that because he came himself and took what we deserve every last bit. And when we grasp that truth, and we can be saved, we can be born again, and live life not really grasping this, live life as if that isn't true. But when we grasp this truth, and that is the work of the Holy Spirit, it's a revelation of the Holy Spirit, but when we really get this, when we really see it and grasp this truth, it changes how we see everything. When we spend time gazing upon that truth, this beautiful truth of who Jesus is, of what he has done for us, of how he sacrifices life for us to give us access to him and to the glory that awaits us. It changes how we see everything. When we spend time gazing upon the beauty of Jesus and we see those who are for us really are greater, far greater than those who are against us. It's the difference between seeing Goliath, the giant Goliath, in relation to yourself in your weakness and your smallness and being overwhelmed and intimidated and afraid or seeing him compared with the mighty God like David did and taking him on fearlessly. And whatever circumstances you find yourself in, you can know, 100% know, you are not being punished by God because Jesus was punished for you. And you can know you're not being abandoned by God because Jesus was abandoned for you. And so we can live with the confidence and assurance and steadfastness that we see in Elisha in all circumstances when we put ourselves in the hands of the greater Elisha, when we put ourselves in the hands of Jesus and he opens our eyes to the spiritual reality of our situation. Now, of course, we know that while seeing things through a spiritual lens will change the way we see those circumstances will help us to stand firm in those circumstances. We know it may not change the circumstances themselves. Sometimes God intervenes in circumstances like we see here in 2 Kings 6. And sometimes he doesn't. Or he doesn't intervene in the way that we would like him to, in the way that we think that he should. Because Christians do suffer and Christians do go through hardships and grief. And maybe there are things you're facing right now and you're asking God to intervene, but he seems silent. And that is when the enemy's voice, it's like there's a doorway opens up for the enemy's voice, the enemy's lies to come in to tell you your God's abandoned you. He's abandoned you. He doesn't love you. How could he possibly love you if he lets this happen to you? And we've got to stand firm against those Lies. I wonder how this story, how this passage came across to the first readers of these books of 1 and 2 Kings. Because the, this book was aimed initially at Israel in exile. It was written for Israel in exile. Jerusalem had been flattened and destroyed. Judah had been decimated by the Babylonians and they'd been carried off into a foreign land. That's pretty dark. 
that is pretty hopeless for them. What do they make of this story? Because I bet they cannot see the horses and chariots of fire in their situation. It's also interesting where this story takes place. So we have Elisha here in the city of Dothan, and Elisha, he's about to be attacked and killed. He prays, he cries out to God, and he is rescued. But centuries earlier, before it was a city, but in the same place, Joseph was chucked into a pit by his brothers in Dothan, same place. He cried out to God as well, but he was sold into slavery anyway. So on the face of it, on face value, it appears, well, the horses and chariots of fire, they turned up for Elisha, they didn't turn up for Joseph. What's that about? Now we know, of course, because we know the story, we know that Joseph came to know this later on in his life as well, that if he hadn't been sold into slavery, that actually his whole family would have perished and God's promises of, of blessing the world through Abraham's family would have perished with them. You see, I don't think it's the case that the chariots and the horses of fire, that the angelic host just didn't turn up. I don't think it's the case that they were absent for Joseph just as they weren't for Jesus, but they did hold back because that was God's sovereign will. And I know that that isn't what any of us want to contemplate when we're in the darkness, when you're going through the wilderness, when you're faced with, with opposition. And of course, it doesn't mean that God won't intervene in your circumstances either. But it is in those times that we have to choose to continue to trust God, just as Jesus did, just as Joseph did, trusting in the goodness and the love of God for you, even when you can't feel it and see it, trusting that even when you're in the wilderness, God is working, God is doing something in your heart through changing your heart through grace. You, you can trust him in the darkest place of all. You can trust what it says in Romans 8.28. This is a genuine promise of God that all things, even the very worst things in life, even the things we cannot understand, all things work together for the good of those who love God and who have been called according to his purpose, we can't always see or understand what that good could possibly be. We can look at our circumstances and think, I can see nothing good about this. I can see nothing redeeming about this. But that is where we put our trust in the goodness and the love of God when we can't see it for ourselves. And the guarantee of his love, the guarantee of his goodness is the cross. It's where we need to see circumstances through spiritual lenses to see the greater reality that is at work in our circumstances. Whatever circumstances you find yourself in, God has not abandoned you. He just hasn't abandoned you. You can be sure of that because he allowed himself to be abandoned instead. And you may feel overwhelmed by the darkness right now. But be assured that there is no darkness that can resist, ultimately resist the light of Christ. No darkness can resist his light. And this is not, none of this is about denying the reality of your circumstances. You know, just pretending they're not there. Put on a happy face because that's what you're supposed to do. Because as a Christian, you're supposed to live in victory. And you're, you're, pretending everything's okay when it's really not okay. This is not about that. This is about knowing and trusting that the God who willingly subjected himself to the worst suffering any person has ever had to endure, he walks with you. He walks with you through your circumstances. He walks with you 
through the devastation of family breakdown. He walks with you through the pain of bereavement and sickness. He wades in with you into those recurring periods of depression, anxiety, and fear. He sits alongside you as you wait in the hospital with great trembling. He is with you. He is with you. He never leaves you. So what do you do if, you feel, if you're in that position? What do you do if you just see the chariots on the ground? If you just feel surrounded, you feel oppressed, you feel without hope, what do you do? You lean into God in complete honesty. You tell him exactly what you're feeling. You, you no know, holds barred. We've got, you know, we've got a whole book of Psalms that models this that models how we can pray, how we can speak to God. No holds barred honesty. You get it off your chest to him. Tell him exactly what is going on. You don't need to be polite to God, but do make sure when you do that that you then spend time resting in his presence and let him speak to you as well. You lean into God in complete honesty. You lean into the family of God, the family of God who can surround you, who can support you, who can pray for you, who can provide you, who can love you, who can remind you of what is really true when you can't see it for yourself. You lean into the family of God. You lean into that truth, the truth of uh, verse 16 where Elisha says, don't be afraid because those who are with us are far more than those who are with them. You lean into that truth just like Christian listening to Watchful. He couldn't see the change for himself, but he chose to believe the truth and trust the truth. You lean into God, lean into the family of God, lean into truth, but you also lean into the Holy Spirit. And you ask him to give you the spiritual sight of verse 17. The Lord opened the servant's eyes. He looked and he saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. You ask him, the Holy Spirit, help me to see the perspective that you can see. Help me to see that perspective that transforms how I will see my circumstances. Ask him to open your eyes to help you see through spiritual lenses. Lord, I need to see what is going on. I need to see those chains. I need to see the limitations on my enemy. I need to see where you are in this situation. I need to see reality. I need to see your strength. I need to see your love for me, who you are, who you've made me to be. I need to know the peace that transcends all understanding that you talk about. I need to see. So Holy Spirit, help me to see. Ask him to open your eyes to show you the greater spiritual reality of your circumstances, to show you the armies of heaven, the chariots of fire in the hills all around you. Amen.